Alright, welcome to episode 2 of season 3. I really hope you enjoyed last week's uh, intro episode back to the Burden of Command podcast. I uh, believe uh, Dr. Alan Weiss had a lot of great stuff to say, so uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. Hopefully you're liking uh, the new format. I'm not going to be with you here too long uh, to get this one going. I just want to say, please take uh, some time to listen through this entire podcast. Uh, the guest today is Natasha Wallace. Uh, she has written a book uh, titled The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Well-Being. Uh, it's an excellent read. Now, we'll let you know that uh, uh, we were quite a few time zones apart, and there were some minor technical issues that cropped up during the recording, so you may hear some, uh, some audio artifacts. I tried to make sure that they were as cleaned up as possible, but... Please don't let that take away from the interview. Uh, Natasha shares a lot of great personal experiences and a depth of knowledge, uh, really just talking about being better leaders, taking care of our people better, and uh, being aware of, of who we are and who we're leading. So again, with that, uh, thank you for everything. Please be sure you get that uh, feedback in so we can make this show even better. And with that, here's the interview with Natasha Wallace. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today's guest is Natasha Wallace. Uh, Natasha is the founder and chief coach of Conscious Works, an organizational well-being company. As a former HR director, Natasha left her job having reached burnout. It led her to recognize that there are two fundamental things getting in the way of people staying well at work, self-knowledge and self-care. She set up her company and wrote her book, The Conscious Effect, which is something we'll talk about today, uh, to help fix that problem. She now inspires a well world of work, coaching, and advising leaders and their teams to create healthier and happier workplaces through a greater focus on well-being and its connection to high performance. Natasha, thank you very much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me, Elle. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, appreciate you joining us. Uh, there's a, kind of quite a bit of a, a time difference here that we're jumping across. So I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, no problem. It's actually okay here. Although I did almost not make it back from the park when my uh, when my daughter decided that pushing her scooter so far became was a, was a problem. So <laughs> the, the normal day to day things that get in the way of us uh, doing these things. Well, there you go. No, that that's uh, that that's cute. I like that. Um, so let me go ahead and and start you with where I start all of my guests. The phrase "burden of command." What does that mean to you? Uh, well, so my experience as a leader myself and working with leaders is that it's an incredibly pressurized job, and actually, to do it well, you have to. It master your trade really it's it's like an art so I think leaders and people who are in command air quotes needed there um have pressures on two sides they have the pressure to um, deal with all of the things that they they have in front of them but they also have the pressure which is increasing I would say to sort of be be the best leader be the best manager that they can be so I would say that anybody that takes on that role shouldn't take it on lightly. 
because actually the expectations and the pressures that leaders face these days are, uh, are vast. I, I could agree with that. I like that. Uh, I like that kind of definition there. Um, so your book, The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Well-Being. First of all, I've got to say, this is one of the most beautiful books that I've seen. Like, like I've never actually picked up a book and said, I want to read this just because of the way it looks. <laughs> but this is a beautiful book. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. I can't take any of the credit for that because uh, my designer um, is amazing. So she designed my brand. And then the designer at my publisher picked my brand up and then created the book and set all the pages out. And I know I, I didn't I didn't see it until it was published, not in real life. And my my book, well, my 300 books arrived and I opened the box and was absolutely blown away by how beautiful it is. It's, it's just a really nicely designed thing, isn't it? It, it is. It's, I mean, and it's a good, powerful design. Uh, you know, I, I strongly urge my readers to, to pick the book up. And I mean, and, and it's just got some, uh, some nice features to it. Like, you know, I've seen some beautifully done hardcover books and paperback books are usually, I mean, they're just kind of paperback books. But the thing I love is the, the front and back cover uh, kind of fold out and you can kind of use it as like a built-in bookmark. And I thought that was just kind of ingenious. Yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah. So um, so in the book, you kind of break it down into about five sections. Um, and and I, what I'd like to do for, for the listeners is just kind of do like a quick touch on each section and uh, ask you to kind of expand on some of the some of the stories behind the lessons there. How's that sound? Yeah, no, no problem at all. Okay. So your first section is titled Together, You Need to Feel Connected. And one of the things that I, I love here, and it's, it's your lesson seven, uh, diversity leads to higher performance. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm definitely not the first person to to say this. Um, you know, there's there's tons of research out there now that shows that having a diverse team um, leads to higher performance. But what I learned from all the research that I did into this field, and also from working with teams, is that sometimes we don't necessarily um, understand what sort of true diversity mean, means in teams. So I talk about surface level and deep level diversity. So the surface level diversity are all the differences that you can see. So, you know, the color of somebody's skin, their gender, their age, you know, the thing, the protected characteristics under employment law, um, where we're told that we shouldn't be treating those people any differently and we should be inclusive. But actually, there's a whole pile of um, deep level diversity categories which we don't necessarily think about and they tend to be around people's expertise and experience um, and their you know their personality I guess and often we exclude people from communications from projects from discussions from sort of all sorts of things unconsciously 
because we don't realize that we need to actively engage sort of everybody and anybody and to seek their view. I mean, just one one um, article I was involved with writing recently was about whether introverts are excluded in the workplace. And I just thought that was really fascinating. It's one of the sort of hidden biases, the extent to which more extroverted people, so people who tend to be more outgoing and more talkative um, and are verbal processes, um, may exclude people who are quieter and more reflective. And actually, it's those sorts of things that you need to really, really pay attention to in order to create an inclusive environment. And we now, I mean, the research shows that if you have a team who have a diversity of ideas and thoughts and approaches, it does lead to greater levels of performance. The only um, exception to that is where somebody or, or people have a very, very different view to the view of the group, in which case it can become disruptive. But most, for the most part, um, you know, if it's a mature team and people are willing to listen, having people with opposing views to you and who will challenge you is, is really, really important for performance. I, I could not agree more with that. Uh, cognitive diversity is extremely important. I think I just accidentally cut you off there. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, you didn't. Nope, I'm good. Oh, I'm sorry. I got a little <laughs> feedback there. Um, uh, but yeah, no, uh, so I, I agree with that 100%. Cognitive diversity is extremely powerful. And, and, and I agree with you that that's something that kind of gets uh, something kind of gets lost because, like you mentioned, we we do a really really good job of promoting the the protected classes and and identifying that and those are easy surface level things to see, like you said. But you know, it's it's amazing what can happen when you include somebody who is not a subject matter expert and looks at it through the eyes of the customer, right? Yeah, for sure. But also, I think what's what's amazing and very exciting for me when I do work with teams is that often you've actually got all the answers that you need within the team. So, mm -hmm. you know, as a management team or a leadership team, you might be sort of speaking to each other to try and solve a problem. But often the answers to the problems are actually within your teams. Unless you give people the opportunity to understand what problems you're trying to solve as a business. Um, and give people who you wouldn't necessarily involve in those conversations normally an opportunity to input. Um, you actually miss the opportunity to um, get a different perspective from, from the people on the front line. So when I'm working with teams, I will always try to encourage greater contribution from outside of the management and leadership team because, you know, a lot of the time they just have the answers. Well, yeah, and that's true. And and so, do you uh, do you, do you get any pushback from the the leadership management team when you suggest that? Because you know what I run into a lot of times is leaders feel like they feel like they should have all of the answers, and if they have to go outside of that leadership circle, they might see that as a sign of weakness. Do, do you run into that a lot? And if so, how do you get past it? Yeah, I mean, of course I do. I think, I mean, I think that the leaders need to be aligned in the first place, so that can that can really help. I mean, just bringing a, a pile of managers and leaders into a room with with their team members and asking them questions before the leaders and managers have had an opportunity to really get their head around the subject that can be quite dangerous. 
um, and can be a bit exposing for people who who want to, as you say, sort of look as though they've they've got the answers. Um, so I think giving the managers and leaders the opportunity to sort of consider the problem to start with is important. Um, but also it's about the one-to-one relationships that managers have with their people. So I'm a, a, a great advocate of, of the new world of performance management, which focuses on having regular check-ins, um, regular conversations with your people rather than having a, an annual appraisal. And when you're doing that, when you're having regular one-to-ones with people that work for you, those are the are really great opportunities to ask for their input and feedback into, into ideas. And then, you know, experimenting with allowing small subgroups to go off and work on ideas themselves um, and then come back to you with their recommendations, that can be hugely powerful. You don't actually always have to have um, a leader in a team to solve that sort of problem. You can get people to go away and, and allow them to do, to do it themselves. Yeah, and and I like what you said there about uh, uh, about working and, and talking with the team. And you actually uh, you have a couple of, of lessons here in the, in the first section: uh, real talk, not difficult conversations, and stop inducting people, socialize them. So if you could kind of, I, I love that one. Stop inducting people, socialize them. So uh, talk about that one a little bit. Yeah, okay. So I think being being an HR professional or having spent my, my career in HR, I know that some of the areas where we tend to fall down can be sort of over-processing or over-pro... putting a process in place when actually it just needs to be a relationship or it needs to be an experience. So I think the induction can become this very, very linear, boring process that people have to go through sort of step-by-step to read a pile of policies and read a pile of content on the intranet and, um, you know, meet the odd person and then, you know, have some sort of job job related training. Um, but actually, you know, if, if somebody has come into work with you, it's normally because they're excited by the possibility or the opportunity to work in your business. And that's being created by the impressions that the branding that you've done has given them, that the recruitment experience has given them, and by the, the early stage relationships that you've formed during the recruitment process. So really the induction should just be an extension of that. So it should be um, interesting, it should be engaging, it should be an opportunity to meet with lots of different people in the business. Um, you know, having uh, things for them to read is fine, but really it should be sort of almost like a uh, you know speed dating course <laughs> where you get to meet lots of different people you get to engage with people you get to hear about what makes the, the company exciting you get the opportunity to share with the people who matter what your aspirations are what your strengths are um, and it's sort of it should be an immersive experience where that that initial excitement is continued because because all too often um, the reality of joining a company in those first few weeks can not meet up to what you anticipated. No, I you said a word there that I know my listeners uh they they kind of their ears probably perked up and you said relationship because that's I've say it a lot on here and I know this isn't going to be the last time I say it but you know leadership is just a relationship. 
Everything that makes a, a personal relationship work is the same thing that makes a leadership relationship work, just in a different manner. You got to be able to talk. You got to be able to understand. You got to have trust. And and and, and so when you said that, I, I I loved it because I mean you're you're a hundred percent right. Uh, you know I remember working with a leader one time that uh, was having some issues. The team didn't feel like they cared, uh, like like this leader cared about the team and. We're talking and it's like, you know, your team just, they don't feel like you know them. They don't feel like you're connected. That's why they're having a hard time talking. And he's like, I probably know my team better than any leader on the face of the planet. I'm like, well, what makes you say that? Well, what I found out was this person had, whenever somebody came on board, they essentially had them fill out like a dating profile of, you know, when's your birthday? Are you married? What's your spouse's name? What's your spouse's birthday? And they they had all of this data on their people that they collected through this very mechanical process. And whenever they tried to use it, it was a mechanical process. They would go in and, and do auto reminders of when such and such his birthday was and send an auto-generated happy birthday message. And so in their mind, they were connecting and knowing their team and 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 you know trying to be there, but to the team because it was such a mechanical uh, non-organic process, it, it had a hundred percent opposite effect. And, and yeah, it was, it was kind of eye opening to them when I said, essentially what you just said there, just talk to them. You know, you don't have to ask them, are they married? If you talk to them and get to know them, they're eventually going to mention, Oh, you know, my wife's got this thing going or my husband's got this mm. thing going and you'll know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sometimes it can be difficult for managers um, and leaders to understand how to build those relationships without it feeling too familiar. I think that's so they sort of avoid it because they think that actually there should be there should be distance. But, uh, you know, for the most part, as long as you are sort of all grown ups and as long as as the leader, you're able to give clear direction. Um, and you know there's an honesty to you and you actually sort of care about the people who work for you that you can have really really great relationships without worrying too much about the blurring of the boundaries i i agree because that was at one of the one of the pinnacles of of military leadership is uh you know i had a i had an instructor one time and and i liked kind of how he identified or how he defined that that kind of barrier between what you're talking about, and and he said, uh, you should be professional enough to be able to send your troops in battle knowing that they're going to die, but you should care enough that the thought of doing that rips your heart out. Mm, that's really that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think I mean not everybody is a is a naturally caring leader or a naturally empathetic leader. I think this is sometimes something that you need to work on. You need, and and actually building those relationships with people and really, really understanding their world, not on a surface level, but understanding their experience of the working world and their experience of life and what drives them and what's important to them, what keeps them up at night. When you start to learn those things about people, it naturally starts to shape a, a sort of trusting relationship. A hundred percent. And 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 here's the other important thing with that, and I think we see that a lot with what's going on right now with the coronavirus. If you 
if you build those relationships, you're building in resiliency. Because I would almost guarantee if we go back and we look at this time period after the fact, the organizations that have taken the time to build that relationship are going to fare much better than organizations that haven't. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's what a lot of the sort of people who are uh, posting about the future of work are saying. Um, And it's interesting, I brought this up with a management team the other day, and I said that, you know, the way we treat our people now is going to really um, uh, help us, I guess, when it comes to retaining them in the future. Because if they feel like we care for them now, then it's going to sort of build a a greater relationship of trust and and one of the management team said oh I don't think we need to worry about that you know people aren't going to be moving around in their jobs there's so much sort of instability in the workplace I mean don't get me wrong they didn't they didn't also think we shouldn't care but I just think that they felt like it wasn't really a risk but I don't necessarily think that's true I think that once things get into a bit more of a steady state people will try to leave their jobs and there will be some churn and people will move around a bit but you know the broader point here is you should always care (laughs) about your people and you should always care whether they're going to leave um, notwithstanding the fact that you know at some point they will leave but you want their experience with your company to be the best that it, it can be And it won't always be perfect and you won't always keep people happy and you won't always care enough or you won't always put your attentions in the right place. But I think the the aspiration should be to treat people as well as you can whilst they work for you. A hundred percent. And I think that's a great segue into the the second section, uh, resilient. Life will throw you lemons. Well, I think this coronavirus issue has just been a gigantic lemon to the world, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you talk about one, and this is really starting to gain a lot more traction. Like, I think if there's a silver lining in this coronavirus issue, and I'll say at least here in the U.S., is uh, there has been a much more broadly uh, advertised focus on mental health. And you have one of your lessons is brain health matters. So what is that about? Uh, Well, I mean, I don't think anybody ever tells us how to take care of our brain health. I mean, there's so, so much information, you know, from day one of us existing um, about how to take care of our physical health. Um, but very few people actually know how to take care of their brain health. And we're starting to learn how to, you know, as we as we see either an increasing level of mental ill health or there's just more people talking about mental ill health. It's a problem and we know that it is. It's as much of a problem in the UK as it is in the US. So people are becoming more aware of the fact that actually taking care of their mental health is important. And, you know, that's that means understanding what your brain needs to survive so yeah i mean in the in the book i talk about the fact that you need to you know there's sort of there's a link between your physical and your mental health so you need to take care of your body you need to take care of your sort of physical being but you also need to recognize the fact that you can't put your brain under constant strain and pressure um if you want it to uh perform if you want you know it's like any machine 
you wouldn't drive your car 24-7 and expect it to perform well. But we, we do expect a lot from our, from our brains. We put a lot of, of, of sort of cognitive load on them. So that's why, you know, there's so many people now talking about the need for rest and, you know, getting good sleep, um, drinking plenty of water and getting fresh air and meditation and yoga. All of these things are just so, so important and useful when it comes to looking after mental health. And they just keep us more balanced and feeling that little bit stronger and that little bit more in control. Okay. And immediately following that one, you have one that I would imagine a lot of leaders when they're reading the book and they get uh, to befriend ambiguity, that they probably kind of halt a little bit because for a lot of leaders, ambiguity is a scary word, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's it's just such a normal part of daily life now, isn't it? And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the current situation is a really, really good example of that. I mean, I've started talking about this more in, in the talks that I'm giving to companies around resilience um, and the importance of, of one, recognizing our response to ambiguity. You know, as humans, we do like to have, most of us like to have some level of certainty and control in our lives. So when things are ambiguous, it tends to sort of throw us out of whack a bit and we, you know, we can get quite stressed because of that. So one of the things that I try and encourage people to do is to recognize what is within their control and recognize what isn't within their control and to really focus on the things within their control and try to improve those things. So, I mean, some of those things might might be that... um, you know, if you're not clear about what your priorities are at work, for instance, well, that's something you can probably take control of. Um, if you're struggling to, um, I guess, focus your time in the right way at home and at work now that everything's blended, well, you know, it, with a little bit of attention, that is probably something you can take control of. So it doesn't mean that everything has to be out of control just because there's ambiguity. But there's also the necessity to sort of let go of the things that you can't control that you would like to be able to. So some of the stuff that's come up lately has been, you know, my parents are at risk or, you know, they're old and, you know, they shouldn't be going out, but they're going out anyway. And it's really stressing me out and I keep on telling them not to, but they won't listen to me. Um, That's one of those situations, you know, you can't parent your parents, you can't change anybody's mind if they're fixed you can try and influence them you can give them some advice you can share wise words but if somebody just doesn't want to do what you tell them to do then you're just going to have to let go of it and let them make their own grown-up decisions in the same way as you want to be able to make yours so you know you've got to sort of try and this is this is the consciousness thing you've got to try to recognize the things that you 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 have some level of control over what you don't have control over and sort of compartmentalize those and then focus on fixing the things you really can fix. And, and that's probably where most leaders struggle the most because, again, they, they think that they can fix everything, right? Yeah. Um, and, that you know, I talk to leaders about um, having conversations, you know, more open conversations with people about mental health. And I don't necessarily mean about mental ill health when something's gone to the point of crisis and, you know, somebody's suffering with severe anxiety or depression. 
I mean, just talking about how you're feeling. Um, and I think there is a sort of reticence sometimes to have an honest conversation because the manager or leader feels as though they're going to have to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. But actually, very often, just giving the space and providing that safe space for somebody to um, air their concerns or talk honestly about how they're feeling could be all that's really needed um, to make them feel better. They just sort of want to be heard and they want to know it's safe to feel like that. So that's that's one of the, the most important things that a manager or leader can do to support mental health is create that sort of space for honest conversation um, without there being any repercussions to, to being honest. And unfortunately, you know, the, the, the research shows us that people still feel as though they're detrimented through having open and honest conversations about about their mental health. Um, you know, and I and I I just think that that is, is such a shame. You know, you're a hundred percent dead on. Uh, one of my interviews uh, just a uh, a couple episodes ago, just talking with the police chief uh, Jason Armstrong, and we got to talk about mental health issues, and and he shared a, a story. That was just fantastic. He was talking about uh, he was actually not a chief yet. He was working in a police department in Georgia, and uh, they had a couple of officers that had gotten uh, had got shot in the line of duty. They were covered, but you know it was one of the the first times that that particular department had faced that situation, and so they were rolling out the the mental health help and you know telling what resources were available. And, you know, that is a very, you know, masculine, macho, uh, you know, we face the same thing in the military uh, environment. And he was afraid that none of the officers would take advantage of the assistance. So he said he responded with an email to everyone setting up an appointment to visit with the experts because he wanted to model uh, kind of like what you were just saying. He wanted to model that, hey, if, if I can do it as senior leadership, it's OK for you to do it as well. And I thought that was just an excellent uh, leadership in action type of approach to take. Yeah, I mean, I just I think it's fantastic when leaders are honest and candid about their own experiences. I think, you know, we I talk about this with people a lot, the difference between showing, showing vulnerability to the point where you're sort of almost creating a dependency on your team and showing vulnerability to show that you're human and telling them your own human stories. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, you don't need to create a dependency on your team to take care of you as a leader. Certainly not. But, you you know, you really, really do benefit from being open about your own lived experiences. And when I when I came, or when I set, set up my business, um, and, of course, in my book, I talk about my own experience of burnout, the amount of people who have thanked me for being honest about my own experiences has really blown me away. I mean, I, I didn't anticipate that. I don't think I ever really told my own story of mental ill health, thinking that, um, or realising, I guess, that so many people would sort of be relieved to hear what I had to say, and then it would create this sort of safety net for them, or, you know, this safe place for them to say, actually, I felt the same too. So, you know, when I've been out doing talks sometimes, I have really senior people coming up to me saying, thank you so much for telling me your story. You know, I feel the same way as you, or I have felt the same way as you, but I feel like I'm out the other side, or I think I might be sort of 
heading towards what you've been through and actually listening to you made me realize I need to change the way that I do things. So sharing these experiences and these stories are just so, so, so important to allowing people to, to own up to what they're going through as well. No, and, and I love it because we're segueing nicely to these sections. This is uh, uh, this has worked out just perfect, exactly how I had it planned up. Because <laughs> uh, the next section is awake. We are less in control than we think. And, and you lead off with seek self-knowledge. Why is that so important? Uh, I based I based my thinking on that very much around my own experience, but it's been borne out in sort of you know so many different other situations now. But I I don't believe that I would have reached burnout if I had been more self aware. I was sort of on automatic pilot for years, just working very very hard in service of my organisation. And rarely, if at all, did I ever turn around to think about what I needed myself, what I was passionate about, where I got my energy from, um, whether I was sort of using my skills in the best way, um, whether the feelings that I felt every day were okay, whether the sort of ongoing less positive feelings were okay to be feeling for so long. So I just didn't really check in with myself very much. And, you know, you hear psychologists talking about the fact that 95% of what we think, sort of do and say are, you know, the same one day as they are the next. You know, we're sort of just repeating patterns. And unless you break that cycle and really get to know yourself and really understand um, how you show up, what your needs are and whether you're meeting them, there is no possible way that you can be one fulfilling your potential but also totally sure about the fact that you're going to avoid um, sort of problems down the line. And, and that one really resonated with me because that's, uh, you know, that, that's one of the, the principles of Marine Corps leadership is actually know yourself and seek self-improvement. And uh, that's one of the things that, that I teach uh, too. And what I love is, uh, you know, everybody uh, tends to think that they actually know themselves fairly well. And and the truth is, like you just pointed out, we really don't. I mean, you have to work consciously at it. And one of the things I do to kind of drive the point home is, uh, and I usually wait until after after lunch uh, to touch on this for this very reason, is I'll ask people like, so how does your breath smell right now? And you kind of see this look on people's face and I'm like, if you're not 100% certain how your own breath smells and it's right under your own nose, how can you possibly think that you know anything about yourself without putting some effort and thought into it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so true. And I, th- I think also, I mean, I, you know, I talk, I'm talking to people about this, this all the time, this sort of self-awareness and getting to know yourself. I also do that in teams to help help them both get to know themselves with each other and also get to know each other. Um, And it's amazing what comes out of those sessions and you realise actually, you know, there is the potential for you to live your whole life without really getting to know yourself, which seems now on reflection so crazy (laughs) that you as a person could, could go through life without really understanding who you are and how you are. Of whether you're ever, whether you ever really 
sort of optimize your potential um that it just seems such a shame i mean i think you know when i when i had my sort of big epiphany that sent me down a, a different path and helped me become more conscious i i suddenly became aware of the fact that i just didn't really know myself and i sort of had a massive identity crisis it's taken me quite a long time to really find myself and it, and it's required some some work some real work um some people don't really want to go there but i just think you've got one life you know we have one life this is a temporary a temporary period of time why why would you not take the opportunity to be your absolute best self oh well said <laughs> very very well said uh I, I and i can't add anything to that so i'm going to move on to uh everyone is biased so talk to me about that one yeah so i mean once again it's a topic that's spoken about quite a lot but um you know the the unconscious bias that we don't sort of don't recognize so if you think of the iceberg analogy and everything that you sort of say on a day-to-day basis and um, the interactions that you have with people and the friends that you have and um, everything that's visible, I guess, sort of sits on the surface. And then all the things that are, are under the surface are things like your, your values, your beliefs and your biases. Now, until you really, really reflect on the ways in which you may be biased, you can totally overlook the biases that you have. And biases can come in many forms. You know, it can be anything from um, judging sort of people based on their sort of socioeconomic um, groupings to, as you know, we talked about earlier on, the, the surface level um, diversity characteristics like age and, and gender. But it's amazing when you actually start to think about the ways in which you are biased, then you realise how that influences your actions so as a as a leader or a manager it it obviously and inevitably leads to you choosing people to work on teams based on the people you like the most or who are like you or who you would like to be like you know the people who inspire you you can end up communicating more with the people that you gravitate towards you can end up with silos and pockets of people working together based on, you know, the biases that are created. And you can also actually end up making people people feel excluded and alienated because of those biases. So I talk about um, the fact that, you know, when somebody comes into an organisation, they do so on the basis that they think they're going to be able to contribute something of real value. There's always that, that that expectation. You know, we talk about the psychological contract between employer and employee. And, and as part of that, an employee would, would, you know, for the most part, I would say, expect to be able to make a positive difference and to be able to bring value and to be recognized for that when they join an organization. But what happens a lot of the time is that they get in and they're able to do their day job and that's okay. But when it comes to making a bigger difference or when it comes to their voice being heard, when it comes to expressing their ideas for change, often those things aren't heard. Often there isn't the space created for them to be able to um, to speak up. So what actually ends up happening over the course of time is they modify their behaviour and limit themselves and place themselves in the box that the, 
people around them have already placed themselves in. Now, for some, you know, for some people that modification is bearable and it's okay, but for other people it's like death by a thousand cuts. So you can get to the point where you just become stuck, um, and that is where you know you lose energy. It's where you feel like you've lost agency. And actually, when we talk about people being disengaged in the workplace, that's very, very often what's happened. They're not able to contribute what they feel they can contribute. They don't feel heard. They don't feel seen. And so they just don't put in as much effort or they're not as sort of emotionally engaged in the organization because they just don't feel like they matter as much. So, you know, we talk about engagement and how do you engage people and you know, improving communications and giving people the opportunity to comment on surveys and all of those things for years. But actually, engagement really is about seeing, like really seeing people and really hearing people and allowing them to contribute more than they thought was possible. Amen. No, I, I, again, I can't add anything to that. You said that beautifully. And, uh, you know, full disclosure for my listeners, this section awake, we are less in control than we think is probably my favorite section. Like I could, we could probably do a whole podcast on just this section. And cause there's a lot of these that resonate for me. Um, and you know, it's just kind of some confirmation bias there when I read them, like you're always communicating and get out of the way and listen. Uh, so to be unselfish here, I'm going to ask you, cause I love this one. Emotions fuel performance. What's that all about? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, for me, this this is sort of a no-brainer now, but I wish I'd learned this years ago. I mean, every single action that we take on a day-to-day basis has normally got some emotional element to it. You know, we feel something about it. Um, and also, you know, our relationship with with work, our relationship with the people around us, our relationship with our manager and leaders. Um, It's an emotional relationship, yet the expectation is that we limit our emotions in the workplace, that we only demonstrate certain emotions and they probably have to be pretty positive. But they can't be too positive because if anybody sees you weeping and jumping around, that's a problem too. So it's almost like, you know, there's a certain amount of emotion And there's a certain array of emotions that you're allowed to express in the workplace. And apart from that, you've got to to pack all of them down. You've got to keep them out of the way. Now, you know, we know that when you suppress your emotions and when you you aren't able to express them and when you aren't able to show that full range of emotions, it can cause real problems. I mean, it can even lead to, to mental ill health. We see that in the military. I'm sure you, you know, you and you know that. That where where people have had to sort of pack their emotions away for years, you know, years and years, and they end up with PTSD. Um, you know, it's it is a, is a it is a problem. So I'm not suggesting that um, leaders suddenly sort of turn around and say, right, everybody can be their full emotional self, because there is some element of regulation that we need around our emotions in order, order to be productive at work. But going back to the point about being able to speak up and being able to express yourself, you know, you should be able to say, you know, I'm having a really, really great day um, as as easily as you say, um, actually, no, I'm not having such a great day today and I feel pretty tired and I'm a bit sluggish and I just don't think that I'm going to do as good a, as good a job today. 
And that, you know, both of those things should be, you know, fine. In the same way as employees should be able to turn around and say, I don't feel well today, so I'm not going to work. Um, we have this expectation that that people are, are bionic, you know, that they're sort of robots who, who turn, it, turn up to work day after day, expressing a certain level of emotion, you know, putting in a certain amount of work, performing to a certain standard. And if anybody, you know, falls down on any of that, we start to see them as a problem or an underperformer or, you know, somebody who's too emotional. But it's, um, it's just not very human. No, no, it's not. And, and I like the way you tied that together. Um, so the next section is growing. We need to grow to succeed. And the one that really struck me here was uh, focus on what is innately right. And, and what I loved about that is it's, it's another one of the sayings I say a lot is we would be much better off if leaders were more concerned about doing what is right than being right. So why is focusing on what is innately right important to you? Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in positive psychology and the work that, you know, the likes of Martin Seligman have done around focusing on strengths and building on strengths. Because, you know, and, and, and in positive psychology, they identify a strength as something that you're good at and gives you energy. So the reason that, you know, the psychologists believe that that's the right thing to do is because if you go to where the energy is, if you go to what excites people and what makes them happy, um, you're going to increase performance by allowing them to do a, what, what, more of what makes them happy. And of course, we, can, we could all agree that if we feel happy, and if we're enjoying what we do, we'll do better, you know, we'll do better, we'll probably do more of it, you'll get more discretionary effort, people will put more in. Um, so, you know, it's this, it's this idea that, you know, like um, appreciative inquiry, a lot of people would use that sort of building on what's working, rather than focusing on what's not working. So, I mean, there's a great book actually called Switch uh, by Dan and Chip Heath, and they talk about bright spots. And they talk about the fact that very rarely do people actually focus on the bright spots and what's working really well and then try and build on that and sort of take take those bright spots and extrapolate that and, and sort of uh, build energy and performance from there. They look at what's not working and try and fix it. But you're instantly limiting yourself. You're instantly taking energy away when you look at what's not working. I mean... There's always going to be things that aren't working. And this isn't a case of sort of ignoring all the things that don't work and need improvement and only focusing on the things that, 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 are, that are good. But there's a way of looking at something to say, OK, you know, what worked well there and what will be even better if we do this differently next time? It's a different conversation from, um, you know, what did we not do very well there, guys? And what do we need to make sure we totally avoid next time? Just even the language is demotivating. Yeah, I, I chuckled when you, you said that because, uh, you know, I remember several years ago, maybe much longer than several years ago, I remember reading an article that uh, kind of highlighted the same thing you just said, but it was talking about, uh, I guess what they did in the study was they sent these kind of false report cards home with parents and it was like all A's and like maybe a B and then I think there was like a D or something in there. And they asked the parents to 
you know, respond with feedback on the grades. And I can't remember the exact percentage now, but it was an overwhelming majority focused on that lowest grade versus like any praise or whatever for the fact that, you know, six or seven of those were A's. And, uh, you know, it just seems like we're really hardwired to focus on the negative overbuilding on the positive, like you said. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunately naturally our default position, which is once again why I have to become, become conscious about focusing on the positives. And you can actually wire that into you. Um, when you're stressed, you're definitely more likely to look at the negatives. So some of this is about, you know, the, just the, the innate level of stress that you're under at the time. But when you start to recognize how much can be achieved and created through looking at what's working well, it's, uh, it, it's just so motivating. I mean, as a coach, it's, I'm, I've got the privilege of being able to sort of be, be people's cheerleaders. So I get the opportunity to help them to reflect and to give them feedback on what they're doing well all the time. And it is such a rewarding thing to do when people sort of feel recognized and when they feel as though people value them, it's amazing the amount of positive energy um, that you get from people. Yeah, that is definitely, I agree with you, as one of the bright spots of, of being a coach. Uh, now, one of the other lessons in here, and I really love the way you put this, leaders who quote unquote know nothing are better. Why is that? Uh, well, going back to your point earlier on about leaders feeling as if they should have all of the answers. I mean, I was one of those leaders. Um, and it wasn't necessarily born out of ego. I mean, there was definitely ego there. Um, but it was, it's, you know, you get promoted into a leadership position. I mean, I'd been managing people for years and years. Um, and you sort of feel as though, you know, you should, you should now know pretty much everything you need to know in order to do the job well. I would really, really struggle um, at times to admit to the fact that I didn't know how to do something. So I would sort of suffer in silence. But it would be, it would be a very painful bit of suffering as you're sort of digging around, speaking to your network, trying to figure out the answers. And actually, I just don't work like that anymore. I find it so, so much easier just to say, actually, I don't, I don't, I haven't done that before, but I can go away and figure out how to do it. And it's amazing how liberating that is. I don't, I don't ever think that really goes against me when I say that. I'm, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm resourceful enough and confident enough that if I don't know how to do something, that I'll, I'll know somebody who does or I'll be able to figure it out. But you just don't need to have all the answers. But also, you know, I'm a firm believer in the fact that the, the more coaching capability that you have as a leader, the more, the more of an ability you have to ask questions, to get curious, to listen to other people, to, you know, uh, be, be, uh, grateful I guess for people's input to be kind um, to try and limit judgment suspend belief all of those sort of things that are associated with being a coach um, knowing nothing is is very very important if you as a leader go into a conversation with an employee feeling that you've got all the answers it gives very very little room for that person to be able to contribute something and to be able to come up with their own ideas or to be creative so you, you see you see learned helplessness being created in teams 
where everybody's sort of almost looking up to the leader, waiting for them to come up with the answers. It happened in my team. Um, and, you know, the leader's looking back down going, what? why are you looking at me? Like, guys, come on. But come on, I want you to be self-starters. I want you to figure it out. I want you to go away and, you know, lead from the front. I want you to decide what we're going to do around this. And actually, the leader doesn't realize they've created the problem in the first place. So unless you do, from time to time, um, just get really comfortable with knowing nothing and letting other people around you come up with the answers, then um, you're, you're basically limiting yourself and everybody else. I, I can agree with that. Um, so we're, we're approached, well, actually, I think we're right at 50 minutes here. Uh, so working on, on moving towards a close. But before that, um, I want to get into section five, uh, purposeful organizations that build success together thrive. And you have one lesson in here uh, that, that I really wanted to, to make sure that we got in here. Human policies for human beings. What does that mean? Um, okay, so having grown up in HR, I now recognize that, you know, so many of the policies that are created by HR play to the lowest common denominator. So they play to the situation that arises when somebody does something that they shouldn't do, rather than speaking to the majority of the workforce who are sensible, grown-up adults who would never do the thing <laughs> that, you're, that you're writing the policy around. And actually, you know, for the most part, certainly with, you know, we're in, I'm, I'm head of well-being for a tech, scaling tech company at the moment. We don't have any policies. Um, we've got a manifesto, which is around the way that we work. And obviously there's things around, you know, holiday, and although we have unlimited holiday, so that's, that sort of takes the need to write a policy away. Um, but, you know, there's, there's obvious things around, uh, you know, contracts, terms and conditions that everybody needs. But aside from that, there's very, very few policies that you actually need to have in an organisation. Um, because if you have, uh, I guess, a code and a way of working that everybody signs up to, you don't really need to tell people what, what to do. Um, I mean, in larger organisations, you obviously need to have some sort of consistency. So, you know, when it comes to things like compassionate leave or um, how to take time off and that sort of thing, I recognise that having some sort of process or protocols in place are important. But the reams and reams and reams of policies that are so dull and so, so um, focused on you know, what could possibly go wrong, just are outdated and should be should be gotten rid of. If you can't fit what you need to say to to a group of employees on, you know, half a page, uh, then, you know, you shouldn't be saying it. <laughs> I, I agree. And, you know, there's some companies that have gotten that extremely, uh, extremely nailed down. And like you said, there's others that... Uh, you know, I've seen some company uh, like employee handbooks or whatever that are, are like technical manuals to putting a space shuttle together, and it's just it's it's it doesn't need to be that complicated. Like you said, human policies for human beings. It it can be very simple. Uh, you know, like there's the the myth about uh, Macy's, and I've never worked for Macy's. I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, there's a the myth that that Macy's. Uh, 
it has uh, one rule, and it's use uh, was it use your best judgment in all instances or something like that. Uh, I mean that's simple. Use your best judgment in all instances, and and it can be that simple sometimes, right? Yeah, I mean it comes down to trust, doesn't it? I think well, going back to the relationships, if if managers and employees have good relationships and they know each other, then actually you can quite easily use a statement like that and feel you know, confident that people are going to do the right thing. But you can't leave people out on the limb um, without any communication or direction from their managers and leaders and then necessarily expect them to, to do the right thing. So, you know, fundamental to all of this is the connection that people have to each other and their leaders in, in organizations. No, I agree. Well, um, all right. So before we close out, I just wanted to say, you know, again, to my listeners, you need to, you need to pick up this book, The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Well-Being. Um, we didn't, I mean, we talked about this for almost an hour at this point, and I don't think we even... I mean, we really didn't even get to all the really good parts. Uh, so it's a very well-written book with a lot of great lessons. So thank you for writing and, and putting this out there. Yeah, thank you, Earl. It was an absolute pleasure to write, and I'm, I'm glad it's helping people. Absolutely. So before we uh, before we work on, or before we close this out, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to discuss that you would like to discuss? Um, I think probably given the current the current circumstances with coronavirus, um, I really would just encourage people to be taking care of themselves. Um, people are working very, very hard to get us out of this situation and through this situation. Um, and you know it, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint to some extent. Um, you shouldn't be working so hard to, I guess the detriment of your own your own health. So just recognizing that that being kind to yourself and recognizing that you're doing the best that you can do is is important. And then for the people who aren't working, for the people who are sitting at home, sort of waiting with the ambiguity of not knowing what's going on and the uncertainty, people might even be experiencing sort of stress around finances. Try and keep connected to people. Try and you know speak to people. Tell them how you're feeling. Um, you know, we've all got to get through this together. So a bit of self-care, a bit of kindness and a little bit of um, help from your friends <laughs> um, just is going to be so powerful in helping us get through of all of this. I agree. Well, Natasha, thank you for spending uh, spending time with us. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of great information. Uh, I kind of wish we had another two or three hours to talk about this because, uh, it was a, again, it was a great book. Um, for the listeners who may be interested in, in reaching out to you, uh, how can they get a hold of you? And, uh, you know, feel free to share your website as well. Yeah, okay. Well, so I'm on LinkedIn, and that's a really easy way to find me if you if you type in Natasha Wallace. Um, but, yeah, my website is um, conscious-works.com. Um, and my new website will be going live in June, so that's very exciting. Uh, but yeah, you can you can catch me there, and you can find out a bit more about what I do. Okay, fantastic, and I'll uh, I'll get links to those in the show notes to make it easier. And then when you get your new website up, let me know, and I'll just update the show notes for everybody. 
Great. Excellent. Thank you. All right. No, thank you. And uh, so listeners, uh, thank you for spending, uh, you know, the last hour ish with Natasha and I. I hope you found the information we discussed here as helpful as I found it. And I'm going to plug it one more time. Go get the book, The Conscious Effect. Uh, I guarantee you, you will learn something from this book and it'll probably end up on your, uh, on your desktop in, in quick reach. Um, if you have any comments for me, you can reach out to me at burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, I just appreciate you listening to the show, uh, writing the reviews, giving us the ratings, helping the show grow. That means a lot to me. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out here, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Electric acid.